You're listening to Thunder Quack Podcast Network. Hi, this is Steve Cusolato, and you're listening to the Epic Marvel Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Epic Marvel Podcast. I am your host, Curtis Findlay, and this is another interview in our Generation X series. It has been 25 years since the premiere of Generation X, which is one of my personal favorite comics, if not my favorite comic book of all time. And I have, uh, I've been doing a series of interviews for the past several months. If you, if you haven't heard these, you need to go back to my website and scroll through the back catalog to see if you can find them. I've been talking to everybody, Scott Lobdell, Mark Buckingham, Richard Starkings, and uh, even the director of the Generation X movie, Jack Shoulder. And this time we have an interview with colorist Steve Bucciolato. And uh, I hope you enjoy this because it's kind of a, a neat thing to talk to a colorist because they don't get a lot of interviews like a penciler or, or a writer does. So yeah, there's a lot of history. And Generation X was a kind of a pivotal point for Marvel Comics as they were just moving into this digital era. And so we talk a lot about the, the process of uh, old style of comic coloring and the new style of comic coloring, and it's quite interesting. Uh, if you're looking for me, you can find me on Facebook and on Instagram and on Twitter. Just search for Epic Marvel Podcast, and you can join my Facebook group, the Epic Collection Facebook group. And uh, you can also find me on Patreon at patreon.com slash thunderquack, because we are part of the Thunderquack Podcast Network. So stay tuned for some more upcoming Generation X interviews. Hopefully I can track down the elusive Chris Bacello. And in the meantime, you can enjoy this interview with colorist Steve Bucciolato. Before we start, what is the correct pronunciation of your last name? Uh, that's controversial. Uh, How do you I, uh, say it? <laughs> I, I say it two ways, actually, which oh. is confusing, because I grew up with the sort of Americanized Americanized version of the name, and it's uh, Busolato is what I grew up with. Busolato, okay. Right. And so, as a, consequently, like a lot of people I know from the past, and uh, including most of the Marvel guys, um, that's how they know me, and they shortened it. My nick, my nickname to them is the Buse because Buse, yeah, okay, right. So, and you'll actually see a lot of my old comics. I uh, would actually be credited as the Buse or mm-hmm. sign it as that. Yeah, I've seen that. Um, somewhere along the way, uh, I probably traveling in Italy. I learned the actual correct pronunciation is Bucciolato. Bucciolato, right? okay. Yeah, Bucciolato. So. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> And um, people would call me that, and I wouldn't correct them. And I think these days, more often than not, so when someone asks me what my name is, I will say Bucciolato because, I don't know, it's correct, I guess. But I accept both, so, you know, it's confusing. What would you prefer? Bucciolato. 
Perfect. Then uh, then I'll go with that too. Steve, I understand that you actually spent a fair deal of time before coloring doing some editing work. Is that right? Uh, that's right. And I actually do some today as well. Okay. Uh, How did yeah. you get in the door with Marvel? It was through the editing side of things, right? Yes. Um, I grew up in New York. And um, while I was at the High School of Art and Design in Manhattan, I was lucky enough to do an internship at Marvel And uh, when I was a junior in high school. And um, I guess I was well enough liked or, and competent enough that they decided to uh, hire me afterwards. So throughout the, like, the following summer and all through my senior year, I worked part-time as an assistant in the general editorial production bullpen area. And uh, when I graduated, finally, they offered me the full-time job, and I took it. So I first started out working uh, in the production side just for a few months, working directly under John Romita Sr., and then a position opened up at Epic Comics uh, under Archie Goodwin uh, in editorial, and it first as an uh, editorial assistant, where I basically did any number of like grunt work things, including answering the phones, uh, but eventually became assistant editor, and I stayed on staff with them for another three years, um, to the point where I left um, at the same time that Archie moved. He left to uh, to go to D.C. because of some internal uh, conflicts uh, at Epic and between Epic and the regular Marvel editorial oh, at that yeah. time. And I I wasn't directly affected by that, but I saw it as a good uh, opportunity because I wanted to go freelance anyway. Uh, so I'm like, I'm going to leave too. And so we basically left at the same time. Um, it wasn't a political statement. <laughs> it was just more like an opportune moment to... Uh, to get out. Um, at that point, I was on staff editing uh, for Epic, and I worked on a bunch of different things, including like the uh, Havoc Wolverine, the Electra Assassin, uh, the Mobius graphic novels, Gru the Wanderer, um, the beginning of Akira happened then as well. And, and so I worked on a diverse array of just uh, interesting books, whether they were foreign or fully painted, is different from the regular Marvel comics yeah. uh which is really um i think it really influenced me and how in the rest of my career actually in terms of what uh, i would later work on and what and also just what interests me but while i was on staff there one thing um I don't think they do this anymore, but at the time it was pretty common practice that a lot of the assistant editors would, to supplement their income, they would do other stuff on the side like coloring. And so, because often coloring was something that, that was done at the last minute. <laughs> yeah. And uh, so they would, um, no, the book's got to go out tomorrow. I've got, you know, 20 pages to color. And they would start dividing it up among whoever was standing there who could, who could <laughs> definitely do the job. Yeah. And so, my star I started out doing jobs like that, but then people really liked what I was doing. And um, by the time I went freelance, I was already kind of established as uh, a colorist that people wanted. That you know, editors would go to me not just for speed, but also because they they liked my work. Hmm. So I was comfortable at that point. Um, you know, my intention was not to ever be a colorist. Actually, it was uh, I wanted to be a writer, artist, and creator of my own stuff. Um, but I had enough freelance work doing coloring that I, I was comfortable. Now I could quit my job and just concentrate on, you know, building up my art portfolio and trying to get more, you know, other types of work. Um, but I soon became really pigeonholed yeah, <laughs> for a yeah. long time as a as a colorist. And, um, and it was OK. I, I sort of a love-hate relationship because um, on one hand, uh, I really was frustrated that I Stuff. And, you know, it was difficult to get people to take me seriously um, as, a, as an artist. 
um, partially because, you know, they knew me as a, they knew me as an assistant editor. They knew me as a colorist and they also knew me, um, since I was 16. So they, they knew me as a kid, basically. Okay, yeah, yeah. So I, I think they, it was really hard for even people I was close to, to really take me seriously as a creator. And so, so I had a hard time breaking through, but meanwhile, uh, I said love hate because, um, I soon got well enough established as a colorist that I was working on some of the best-selling books at the time. So whether it was Fantastic Four or getting out the X-Men books, you know, Daredevil, Thor, like a lot of books that I, I loved, you know, working with uh, working on those characters and working with some of those creators that were like heroes of mine, you know, like Walt Simonson or so. That was really, uh, you know, that, that felt really good at the same time to be part of that, you know, so... Well, I think that a lot of people don't know exactly how the process works with coloring. Uh, back yeah. in that, in the in the eighties, when you were doing, or mm-hmm. the, I guess the late eighties, early nineties, when you were doing yeah. X Men, all that kind of stuff. How how did coloring work? What was your process? Uh, my process was um, well, the nuts and bolts are um, the colorist would create something called color guides, and what that is is they would take the um, the inked artwork and make a photocopy Xerox of it down uh, from the larger um, 11 by 17 that it was drawn at down to like regular letter size. And um, they would try to Xerox it onto something that was like a little better than your normal Xerox paper. But often it was just standard, you know, this the equivalent of the inkjet paper that we use today. Right. Then there was a limited palette of colors that you were allowed to use um, because of the, the way that the process worked. And so we had a chart uh, of all the colors. So let's say they were all percentages of um, red, yellow, and blue, basically. Right. So, for example, Spider-Man, his colors, you know, red and blue. So the, the main red color, the code for that is it's 100% red and 100% yellow. Oh, okay. And that's not orange? No, it's not. It's it's it makes a scarlet red. Okay. So the code for that, because it was a hundred percent of each of those, would be Y R, right? Okay. And so an orange, which might you might do a highlight of that, or or I'm blanking on the character that has orange. Uh, probably a lot of the villains did. But an orange um, would be uh, like a hundred percent yellow and fifty percent red. Okay. okay. So yeah. so then that would be called uh, YR three, and then or twenty five percent red, which is a lighter, like a bright sunny orange. That would be YR two. Oh. So every <laughs> so every color and and then like the you know so like Superman's cape is like a hundred percent. Uh, blue, so it's B, but um, the shadows on it, or if, to get a little bit more of a royal blue, you would add a little magenta in there. So ah. it would be BR2 is like the standard blue that is, say, the, the um, highlights on Spider Man's black parts. Right. So okay. anyway, okay. Or, or Superman's hair is, is, that, is that. So there's a whole series of codes. And so you would basically you take your Xerox of the, of the inked artwork and using. Usually these uh, uh, watercolor dyes that were transparent, you would paint, you know, the coloring, and it was all flat pretty much at that point, with some exceptions. And then you actually write codes, you know, scrawled all over the, the paper, wow. like you would do it, like an arrow pointing to Spider-Man and say this YR, YR2, YR3, and, or so, and so forth. So like a Caucasian skin tone was usually Y2, R2. So it's like a 25% yellow, 25% magenta. And that was like <laughs> the standard for those characters, you know? And you have all of these codes in your head still after all these years? I do. I I'm, do yeah. I'm sure you don't use these codes anymore, right? I I don't, but uh, it informs how I I think. I think 
it, it's difficult to explain, but now we do stuff digitally, right? Yeah. I still, um, instead of YR or whatever, we use, um, uh, it's more accurate to the printing. So like the, the printing plates are CMYK, which is cyan, yellow, magenta, and black, yeah. or black is K, right? So when I'm coloring, if I'm using the, uh, in Photoshop, there's a slider where you can you know, slide the colors to like the different percentages of each of those colors. I still think I'm like, well, Spider-Man is like 100% uh, uh, yellow, 100% yeah. magenta. And so I still think in my head like YR as I manipulate the colors in, in Photoshop. And um, that's, I think, that's something that is, you know, I think no modern colorist can relate to. Right, yeah, <laughs> but, for sure. Uh, the ones who are like from my era and who made that, that uh, leap, yeah, I think you can't help it. And I think it's a real advantage because what it gives us is a, we know what those colors are going to print like. Um, and we, you know, uh, I think modern colorists uh, tend to just pick colors based on how it looks on your monitor screen, not how it's going to look when it's ink on paper. Mm. And, it, and so there's um, there's a lot of printer knowledge that I've de- developed over the years. And it's because I started out doing these uh, hand-painted guides um, because that's the thing is I would paint up these guides and then someone else would take those and create the printing plates with them. And they would basically, before it was digital, they would actually cut these films that you know the easiest way to describe it is that they would cut uh they would mask films that were like of the dot patterns that you would see in the old comics so right. like a 25 percent dot pattern had the dots further apart than the 50 percent or the 100 percent which would yeah. have no dots right 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 so basically you would do color guides and then you would pass it off to some to a team of strangers at the printer who would try to interpret what you meant right so <laughs> yeah. You know, and then even in the beginning of digital coloring, they still insisted we do color guides, and who would be they'd be sent to a team of digital artists who would try to interpret what I did in my color guides. And so there's always this disconnect, right? Yeah. And it really, this is the part where it's kind of interesting when you get into the the period of Generation X, is that you know I'd started this this company called Electric Crayon with another old Marvel friend of mine, and we were among the innovators who were doing digital coloring at the time. Um, but it was, you know, and our basic, basically our big sell was we were taking these desktop publishing tools, which were had become available and becoming popular, which uh, smaller companies like Image Comics had just been developed. And because they were small, they immediately adopted those desktop publishing tools. Whereas Marvel and DC, they were like these slow dinosaurs who refused to change, right? <laughs> yeah. And then they tried all sorts of things to get to that point. Like they bought Malibu Comics because they had an internal coloring department, you know? Yeah. And so that's like that was an interim step where like I'd still be do- painting color guides and then they would give them to their Malibu guys to turn into digital into the digital artwork that gets printed. And for a long time, it's like they didn't trust, like Marvel in particular, it's like they didn't trust their colorists to actually work on the what was going to be printed. It, it was weird. So for a long time, even when I was doing color, digital color separations myself, they would still have me do color guides first. And wow. and, and often, would, or they would have me do them and then give them to a different separator to do the separations. So like, my early X-Men stuff, um, I was doing uh, the color guides, but then another company like Digital Chameleon might do the separation, even though I had my own coloring company. It made it was weird. It's like they didn't want to put all their eggs in one basket or something. 
And Generation X was the first one where Marvel at least said, okay, we're going to let you do everything. Wow. You know? And, yeah. you know, and because I was in the office with Richard, it's like, you're going to not just, hand, we're going to handle all the digital production and then from to take the inks and take it all the way to printing basically. So that was, that was the big change. And it took a long time to convince them to let us do that. Wow. That was great. That was a, a really good overview of everything. I think the only thing that I'm not sure about is just the term color separations. And I see okay. that in comic books all the time. Uh, what exactly does that mean? Well, in the olden times, it was what that meant was, as I was trying to uh, describe the uh, actual uh, cutting up of the dot patterns yeah. that then would be used to create the plates for printing. Okay? Right. okay. Once this became digital, there were still color separations, but um, it was done uh, mechanically. Basically, they would take our digital files and um, we, like, for example, partnered with a printing output place that would take our files and it would create films based on them, separating them into the four plates. So, so oh, okay. okay. So, and then from those films, the printer would create actual plates that would go on the printing press. Okay. These days, the, that, that interim thing about outputting film, no one does that. Usually, we go direct now from uh, the, the digital file to the plates. Right. So that, that, that entire industry, I don't know, really know if it exists anymore. So the yeah. printing is still done on plates today? It's not digital printing? No, okay. it's done in plates, it's, yeah. The yeah. only um, print-on-demand uh, is done like uh, digital printing, right. which is the same as basically like a – it's like a printer or a Xerox. Yeah. Um, most printing is still done not exactly the old-fashioned way, but the same idea where there are, there are printing plates. And... But the technology definitely seems better because you don't often – like it's. I think it would be a very rare case that you'd see an off-registration oh, yeah. uh, page yeah. or anything like that these days. No, there are, I think, a lot more – digital um checks and balances and and accuracy to keep everything in line you know right. occasionally you still do uh see very very minuscule uh registration problems you know so we still have to check for that yeah so you mentioned a little bit about starting up electric crayon what mm -hmm. really drove you to say that you needed to actually form your own company well, at that point, uh, I just moved to Los Angeles, and um, I I was very well established then doing color guides. Okay, and when I I moved here, and an, an old friend of mine who was also um, an old Marvel intern named Mark Siri, uh, he'd moved out here before then. Uh, he was working in desktop publishing, basically, for a bunch of different clients uh, in Los Angeles, um, doing various you know doing production and. Uh, graphic design and that kind of stuff. And so when I moved out, he introduced me actually to Photoshop. Okay. And like this was like the kind of the buzz of what the next thing was going to be for and and the guys at um at Image were start just starting to do that at that point. You know, Ole Optics really pioneered the uh the um digital coloring you know, with Akira and with the first image books, but his system was totally different. It was based on this, this vector-based artwork. But I think the image guys really started playing around with Photoshop. And so uh, Mark was like, oh, you should get into this. And so he kind of on the fly trained me. And I, at the same time, I don't know how I did it actually, but I convinced DC to actually hire me to, to digitally color 
Batman Spawn okay. crossover. Yeah. Which, uh, even though I had no experience doing this before, I've done like little samples basically, uh, but they hired me to do it. And it was a big learning curve. There was actually, we learned a lot um, about um, the whole um, digital production at that point. I mean, because there were things that we didn't know about. And I, I think even the image guys were learning at the time. And which caused problems during the, the printing, but it was it was a learning curve that we got paid for, and it was exciting. And based on that, Mark w- was in touch with um, uh, this uh, this third party who became um, like an investor and, and convinced him that look, this is what we can do. I think this is we can you know start a whole company based on th- this. So. Yeah. You know, it was basically uh, Mark had the technology, and I had the—I already had the client base. I was working for DC and Marvel, and and some of the smaller companies as well, Dark Horse and so on. And so, based on just on that, we got funded to start this company. And we were also at that point, um, we were working with Richard a little bit at, at that point too. Right. Um, Mark was one of the, and some of his friends were actually uh, involved with. Um, his the creation of his first fonts and stuff too, like it's just on a, you know, advising him on that. So, so we were all friends and we ended up moving together into this, uh, first this little office space, uh, in Santa Monica. And then when it looked like we we're trying to do something with this for real, we got this pretty sizable, um, office space, uh, right in a prime part of Santa Monica, um, like on fourth street, which is right by the, this fancy, uh, uh, it's like a tourist area with this third street promenade, um, nice. which, uh, it was really cool. And we had a whole floor of this building and we decked it all out modern and start hiring people. Yeah. And I don't know, we, it just, uh, we were there at the right time. What is the difference between, what's, what's the relationship between coloring and lettering? Cause I would assume that in the old days, the letters would go on first and then you would like all the paste up and everything would happen and then you would color. But, mm-hmm. The way I see things now, especially when Marvel advertises and that kind of stuff, is like you get you can get pages fully colored with no words and no sound effects. That's right. And then they're added afterwards. Is that right? So you, so you kind of switch yeah. the order of things there. Well, it's, it's less that they're squishes and more that they're happening at the same time. Okay. That's like because we both work from the ink files. Yeah. So uh, and they're just on different layers, and you can turn them on and off. Yeah, or they're in different. We we actually work in totally different uh, applications. You know, oh, the, okay. the, let, the lettering is usually done in Adobe Illustrator. Right. Okay. Of so uh, yeah. So uh, basically, what happens is they'll um, someone, you know, at this point, uh, it used to be um, we would handle some of the, those production aspects of like uh, putting all the lettering and coloring together. Um, in Generation X, we did that. But today, um, when I worked for Marvel or DC, I just send them the digital files of the uh, colored pages and I don't even see the lettering until later. Oh, okay. Yeah. Tell me about generation X. I know it's kind of, we've taken a long time to get to this point here. That's, this is what I want to talk to you about specifically. <laughs> um, wh- where did you come into the process uh, of the sort of formation of generation X? I guess in the beginning, um, the, uh, I, I was already working on the X-Men books uh, on uh, Uncanny X-Men and Wolverine at the time. I don't remember if I was doing both or one or the other when Generation X was uh, first being formed. But um, I think at, at the time, I was definitely at least one of uh, the editor, uh, Bob Harris's uh, go-to guys. So he brought me in, in right in the beginning. Um, they, they wanted me on that. And uh, I know Scott Lobdell was uh, a writer. He was uh, really interested in 
in the digital lettering and in the whole idea of bringing us all together as a team. And so I'm, I, you know, we all had, an, we already had this relationship with Bob Harris um, as editor, but uh, so I'm not sure how much pushing Scott had to do or if it just seemed natural at that point. You know, I was brought on early so that I could work on that um, that little preview book that you mentioned, but also, um, you know, to do like uh, color character designs and stuff too ahead of time. Okay, so you worked yeah. with Chris to design these characters? Uh, a little bit, you know. I mean, Chris would, uh, you know, he... he he pretty much knew knew what he wanted. I think for for those for the characters. I think um, when it came to the main costumes, uh, you know, I remember doing like a couple different versions. You know, where they might be, where you know, they're red versus you know blue. But they they were pretty much set, I believe, from the beginning. Okay. Yeah. And uh, how did you approach the coloring of of the actual issue? Like did. Because this was your first, this was going to be the first monthly comic that Marvel was going to use, like your process. Uh, did mm. you attack that in a special way, or did you have to, or I guess you were kind of writing the book at the time? It was special in that we knew it was an opportunity and said that we didn't want to mess up. And we, and was it also, you know, as I'd mentioned before, up until then, uh, Marvel was keeping the digital separations and the, a distance between that and the coloring by by still insisting on colors doing color guides instead of doing the actual digital work. So this would this would be a little different because even though they asked me to do color guides, it was more of like they just wanted to see it ahead of time. And then me and my team would take the color guides and actually do the separations and, and see it through to the printing. So this was a, a, our opportunity to show a look, you know, we, we should have been doing this all along, you know. Mm. I think basically they they wanted to look good. They wanted to look different. And, you know, and the bottom line was they really wanted to compete with the image comics. You know, the image comics, they were able to have a certain level of quality because they had artists, you know, digital artists working on what was going to be printed, you know, and they had um, they worked in a small studio where they they were the artists and the uh you know, the, the people who drew the line arts and the colors could work together and, and create a real look for those things and more detail. This whole uh, situation where someone else had to interpret what I meant in my color guides, you know, obviously there's always going to be uh, room for the, uh, the dig- digital artist or the color separator to just do something completely different than what I intended. Right. And, that, and that could just, not just in terms of the detail, but in terms of like, say the saturation of a color you know so something that was meant to be subtle might end up being too bright or vice versa you know so there's just a lot of room for interpretation and so the big deal here was that i didn't have to do that anymore it's like i even if i didn't work on every page myself as far as the digital separations went i was looking over the shoulder of the people who did so and i can decide as well, um, like for example, there was one of my uh, team who was especially gifted at like um, doing beautiful skies and clouds and things like that. So if there was a page that really could use that treatment, I would say here, you know, give that page to her. Oh, okay. And for that matter too, um, because I was actually not just overseeing; I was actually doing the separations myself uh, whenever I could. I could cherry pick the pages that I really didn't want to trust anyone else with to, to do myself. Oh, okay. So, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. What What's an example of one of those pages that you really 
that you wanted to do yourself? Do you, can you recall from those early Gen X days? <clears throat> sure. I mean, some of them. I mean, I, like an easy one even would be like uh, page one of Generation X number one. Uh, um, yeah. Just uh, besides the – I mean, it's uh, – it's like a beautiful autumn scene, which I, I like coloring that kind of stuff uh, in general. But also, frankly, my ego says that it's, you know, it's the first page or if there's a double page spread or some really exciting page that I feel is going to you know, be get the most you know, notice, then I want to have my stamp on that uh, more than the others. You know, then it's like a talking head scene, which I could feel more comfortable passing on to one of my team. Right. Yeah. You know? Yeah, those first few pages of of issue number one really, really set the tone of the book. And I think like that page you mentioned with with uh, page running, yeah, and the turnover and Jubilee sitting there, like you, yeah. it's just uh it didn't feel like the other digital coloring of like, of the other X books at the time. It had definitely a more real quality to it. I think. Oh. Yeah. well, I think that was just me setting up, you know, my style, and I think it, you know. And I, and I have to say, with um, back then when the, the digital coloring was new and everyone was jumping on the Photoshop bandwagon, you know, uh, we every all colorists will admit we did some horrible things. We did some terrible experiments, you know, <laughs> trying to do things like oh, like stick a photo moon into the background of this page, and it just and, and <laughs> looked terrible. Um, but you know, but that was. You know, that was just part of the time that people didn't know what to do with it yet, you know, and so they were willing to try anything. And um, for that matter, a lot of times the editors would um, would ask for some weird effect that like would might be inappropriate. But because it was new and exciting, they're like, yes, let's throw a lens flare on that, you know, right? And, you know, and you would do it because, you know, they're, they're paying the bills and uh, or you might even think it looks cool because it's just different from your, you know, we were used to working in this flat medium, you know, with limited colors. And now it's like oh we could do anything so we did made a lot of uh bad decisions but you know the, the bottom line was that uh, it took i think it took everyone involved a few years to really get a handle on what works what mm-hmm. doesn't work you know and what and you know how, how to color these things and in a way that um does not like draw too much attention to itself but really uh, takes advantage of having the ability to to, to really to, to affect the outcome because before when there was this, this middleman you, you know you did what you could but ultimately it, it was in, out of your hands you know how the how the book was going to print so what are some of the coloring innovations that you are really proud of uh, not the not the yeah. not the paste up moon <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 and I, I can't take credit for innovating that one either. So, <laughs> yeah. uh, no, I don't know. I think what I'm more proud of is uh, once once we all kind of kind of figured it out, then you could really start to see people's styles, you know. And I hope you know what you were starting to see there in the first issue, Generation X, and you're talking about it looking different. I think that's like the beginning of, of my style. Yeah. Um, for what you know for what that's worth i still approach coloring the same way as i did when i was painting the color guides in that um what i prioritize over everything is still it's storytelling over anything else it's clarity over anything else effects are secondary you know the the amount of realistic modeling is is secondary i think it's more like trying to make a good reading experience you know and creating a mood and creating a mood is what i love doing the most you know um i can't think of anything more boring to color than like a a 22 page you know fight scene of lasers and things you know or you know (laughs) uh, but like a a moody dramatic 
scene, whether it's, you know, night or sunset or, or whatever it is, you know, I, I enjoy that. It's almost like, um, like being a cinematographer or something, I guess, you know, and picking the right lighting and uh, color yeah, tone. Yeah, yeah, you know, sure. So. And do, does your work, do you approach uh, the coloring a specific way depending on which artist you're working on like for Chris and Mark's art in Generation X did you color that a different way than when Chris went on uh, went on leave from this book and Tom Grimmett came in yeah I think so um, though uh, to be fair a lot of those decisions uh, are editorially driven or at least it was back then uh, it's a little you know, maybe a little less so now um, there was such a pressure to like compete with uh, image at the time we were doing generation x that you know they kept you know the, the buzz word they kept throwing around was we need image style coloring quote unquote oh, right wow. okay. you know and so i might have liked to like um, color chris's work a little bit more subtly for example or like you know a flatter palette you know mm-hmm. yeah but that's not what they wanted. Basically, um, it's not always in my hands, you know, uh, what uh, stylistically what what I'm doing yeah. or what I think. Would, and and in fact, you know, it's that's not just me. That's uh, that's the artwork as well, you know. And uh, so there's there's sometimes there were there were even conflicts where, um, you know, I, I don't think I'm talking out of turn to say like, for example, when I was working on um, Uncanny X Men for many years uh, with uh, Joe Matarera as the uh, artist mm. and. Um, he had his, his vision of what his artwork should look like, you know, and it was um, based on what he was looking at at the time. He really was into Disney and video games and uh, and coming from a manga perspective. Also, he had incorporated all these things into his into his work. Um, and uh, and he was pushing the whole look of the book, including the coloring, to go that way. Right, right. But, and at the same time, uh, I would get conflicting notes from the editor saying that, no, no, uh, we don't want any kind of hard edge manga-like uh, modeling. We want it to be more like this, you know, whatever the, you know, Jim Lee is doing over at, you know, on Wildstorm right now. Wow, so okay. um, it became difficult and I had to sort of try to find a compromise in between or at least, um, if not stylistically, then at least what I would say to one or the other when I talked to them about it, you know. <laughs> so so that could be difficult. And I think, you know, and I think Joe and I had a really good collaboration in general and I think we had fun working on stuff. But when he went off and did his own his uh, Battle Chasers book, you yeah. know, that's where he started getting what he he really wanted, you I know. See, yeah, right. And I feel like I could have done that <laughs> also, but I wasn't allowed to because of the you know uh, my own constraints from from the editor and what they were trying to achieve. So there there was there's a little bit of conflict going on there. When you yeah. create um, a style guide or a color guide for let's well for the Generation X characters. Mm-hmm. And then you're not on the book anymore. Do you hand over that those that's the same guide to the next person who's coming on board so they can use the consistent colors? No, I think it's um, especially now that everything's digital. I mean, they could basically send digital files yeah. to someone else. Um, I don't know if they did. You know, in fact, I would um, so they didn't. <laughs> uh, okay. They uh, actually looked at what other people do. That you know, the color choices are, are different. You know, they just basically. Um, you know, back in uh, when we limited color palette, it was very obvious, you know, Spider-Man is YR and VR too. Yeah. When you get into digital coloring where there's the um, subtlety is, is like, a, you know, one out of 100% of, mm-hmm. uh, of any given color. I mean, there's a lot of room to uh, to play with. And with the um, 
the ability to do more realistic coloring too. What does that mean? What does a red costume look like if you're standing in the daylight versus what if you're standing in a darkened room or if you're standing in a room that has some other color that's, you know, permeating the, the, the room, you know? So right, it, right. it's interesting balancing act because, you know, if you want to color realistically, then the color is going to look different all the time, right? It's mm-hmm. like, it's, it's subjective uh, from the point of view of, um, of IP. If you want your characters to look consistent, if you're Marvel, um, you know, then you're, you've got, you know, you're fighting that conflict between uh, letting artists draw in the styles they want or color in the styles they want, you know, or, uh, or keeping everything, you know, with the, with the consistent look. And uh, at least um, with, you know, Marvel and DC, I think it's understood that in, in comics that there's, there are going to be variations in everything. I mean, when, you know, if Chris Pachala draws Generation X and uh, someone else, you know, comes on afterwards in a totally different style, obviously the characters are going to look different. You know, mm, there's right. no, there's no um, set um, style guide in that respect, like there is in animation. Were you involved at all with the Heroes Reborn stuff for Marvel? Uh, yeah, yeah. I colored some of those. That was full-on image, right? So was because that's <laughs> what Marvel was shooting for, um, yep. based on what you Absolutely. were saying. So you were, did, and so did you attack that, like try to mimic exactly what Image was doing? Uh, a little bit, yeah. I mean, I was that was the mandate, right? Nowadays. You are. Uh, you mentioned at the beginning of this interview that you really your hope was to get into doing kind of your own stuff, and you uh-huh. are starting to do. You are getting into your own stuff now, right? Uh, well, I have all along now. I mean, it's been a long time since Generation X, and in in the time since then, uh, my career's changed a lot. Yeah. You know, I've um, I occasionally still do coloring. I actually just finished uh, a run on. Uh, DC's book, uh, the the Wild Storm, which was fun, and I've done little odd, um, you know, and issues here and there. Uh, but mainly, uh, what I mostly do, um, I've kind of fallen into a niche where um, several years ago I uh, I, I drew a um, this um, sort of nonfiction like uh, for um, Rotary International hired me to draw this. Um, short comic about polio <laughs> about uh, okay. about the disease and uh the you know jonas salk's uh, uh vaccine and then also the rotary international's you know uh, continuing efforts to you know eradicate the disease right so i'd done this thing for them and then as a result it's kind of snowball where I've, at this point i've done a few different stories that they've printed including like a biography of the rotary founder um based on seeing that like lions club hired me to do some stuff and uh a bunch of other like uh, like um, non comics uh, organizations have hired me to work on different projects, and ultimately um, uh, the biggest of those was a few years ago. This uh, this uh, organization in New York called Tibet House was working on a uh, like a graphic novel biography of the Dalai Lama. Oh, okay. And um, they had some trouble with this artist they were working with, and they originally hired me to sort of try to rescue the project. And then ultimately, I ended up taking over the project as an art director. And I, um, we got, we had to let the artists who they had uh, working on it go. And I built up a new team. And I'd, uh, you know, I thumbnailed this entire, you know, it's almost 300 pages, uh, this this book, and I, and I hired other people to actually draw it and digitally paint the uh, the, the series, the, the, excuse me, the uh, the story. Um, and it's, you know, it came out really nice, this big hardcover, you know, book that uh, is hard to find, but it's out there. <laughs> and, um, 
And as a result of that, I've gotten a lot of, um, it's like a weird niche that I've fallen into of doing like these uh, non-mainstream comics uh, stories, storytelling, you know, for other people. And um, that includes, so uh, I've got, I have clients in advertising and then more, and then recently I even DC has hired me to work as like a freelance editor um, doing uh, some of their custom projects. So like I worked on, uh, Justice League thing with Mercedes and something about the Suicide uh, Squad movie and, you know, and several others. There's Lego Batman and uh, a bunch of other projects um, that they, they hired me to, like, oversee. And it's all kind of based on on these projects I've been doing on my own. In a way, it's a return back to the uh, my roots as an editor at Epic. And, um, yeah. And it's working with a lot of the same people who uh, have migrated from uh, Marvel over to DC. And then, right, then my my most current project is I'm uh, working on a graphic novel that I'm uh, drawing. Uh, it's another situation where I was originally hired to um, oversee it and create and hire a creative team um, uh, to work on it. But I really enjoyed the story when um, my the client who was the writer, her name is Phoebe Near. She's a writer in New York and. Uh, she approached me with the story and it's like this uh, young adult graphic novel like this dystopian kind of story and i really like the characters and i said you know what i really want to draw this so we've been working on it now for over a year and uh you know hope that in the next year or so we'll be able to uh put it out and uh i'm, I'm very proud of it so it's, it's some of the best work i've done and it's uh it's a pleasure because whenever i get to to draw and color my own work it's just, it's i feel like it's a uh, yeah it really is a. It's what am I trying to say? It's a, um, it's fulfilling. It's fulfilling. It's what it's what I've always wanted to do, and uh, it and I feel like it's it's me also. You know, yeah. there's when you're doing when I'm doing coloring, it's often it's a job for someone else. You know, to, and uh, it's someone else's artwork that I'm trying to respect and that I will have different levels of collaboration. Some artists, you know, want to be involved in every page and give me their notes and. And some are completely hands-off, you know. Chris Pachala was fairly hands-off. He had very specific things he wanted, but he trusted me to, you know, to, to color the job the way I, I saw fit. Um, yeah. Anyway, I, I, that's kind of where I'm at now. I'm working on this graphic novel, and, uh, and uh, hopefully everyone will love it. <laughs> <laughs> um, so do you have anything to show of it already? Um, is anything up on your website uh yeah a little bit um on my um i think it's on my facebook and instagram i've started teasing it with little panels and i and i recently put a uh, like a promotional piece that i'm uh, having printed for um new york comic-con in october i'm going to have a, a table in artist alley there so uh, i'm gonna you know start telling people about it and getting them on board you great know? well we look forward to seeing what uh, what comes of that and um, yeah that's that's very exciting Okay, I think maybe one last question. Here's a little fun one. Who's your favorite character of Generation X? Oh, I think it's Jubilee. I don't know. I... <laughs> <laughs> now, is that a, do you pick that because of her character or because you enjoyed uh, working with her when you were when you're coloring and that kind of stuff? Both. Um, you know, I like her character and I enjoyed it actually, you know, coming from the X-Men as well. Of course. And, um, you know, and this is going to sound stupid, but, um, you know, you didn't ask me what my favorite color is, which oh. seems like a, a normal color, uh, coloring, colorist yeah. question to ask. What and, is your uh, favorite color, Steve? And, and uh, yellow is oh, my okay. favorite color and Jubilee is full of yellow. So, uh, yeah, 
big yellow coat. So that's um, funny. That's great. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, you know, it's uh, it's it's easy to color a character like that because um, she's so bright that you can put her up against any background and she'll just pop, which is. Uh, I guess her power set also probably provided, I don't know if if, uh, her power set made it tedious to color or if that was fun to color, all of the fireworks. Uh, A little both, you know. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Oh yeah, I can. I can just imagine. There's some of these characters like uh, like Chamber, yeah, who probably required way more work uh, just individually than someone like M who didn't have an obvious physical power or anything like that. Yeah, I guess. I mean, but Chamber is an opportunity to, like, you know, light a scene, interestingly, because he's a light source, you right, know? Right, yeah. Um, I think, uh, un- unfortunately, I, I, today I would handle him totally different. You know, it's like the way, um, as, I've, as I've mentioned, that, you know, we sort of um, now we kind of know what to do with the tools, you know? So, like, today in Photoshop, I can think of a lot of ways to really make that, uh, that fiery whole... Uh, you know, look, look vibrant, look like it's on fire and glowing in, 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 uh, in, you know, using techniques that were not really available back then. Okay. So, well, yeah. <laughs> I so. hope you can uh, do that someday. I would like to see how you tackle <laughs> that. That'd be great. Yeah. It's a, and there you go. That's a, a new goal. Yeah. <laughs> Wonderful. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, I appreciate you talking with us today. Thank you for being part of our Generation X retrospective um, oh. 25 years ago. Can you imagine? I can't. No, it's crazy. It's crazy. (laughs) Yeah. Well, uh, thank you for joining us today, Steve. We appreciate your time. Oh, my pleasure. And uh, good luck with uh, finding Chris (laughs) Bashal. Say hello for me. Will do. 